Hey everyone, after more than 15 years in the business, I finally got a book published. If you want to do me the biggest favor in the whole world, please head over to MikeyOp.com and buy a copy. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com and the book is named Ardor and it's about psychics and the history and future of the universe. I wrote it and I think you'll love it. Hey everybody, I just want to thank you so much for listening to the show. Our numbers keep growing and we have a premium package and it would really help us out if some of you loyal fans would head over there and sign up. You get bonus monthly podcasts, you get a book I wrote, and you also get extra essays and other content. So please head over to MikeyOp.com, that's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com, and sign up today. Hi, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, we have Jennifer Moore, the author of the Amazon bestseller, Empathic Mastery. She's the founder and headmistress of the Empathic Mastery Academy and host of the Empathic Mastery Show podcast. She's a master trainer for EFT International and a mentor and healer for other highly sensitive empaths. Intuitive from the get-go, Jennifer experienced her first prophetic dream when she was nine, and she's been navigating her extrasensory awareness ever since. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. How are you doing today? Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here, and I am doing really well. It's actually lovely here. I'm in Maine, and it's not even freezing today. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, I never got to visit much of it. I only snuck up from New Hampshire and, like, kind of wet my toes for, like, 30 minutes there, had lunch or something, but it was beautiful. Speaking of moving and all that, um, we always ask our guests, how old are you? Where did you grow up? Which might be different from where you're currently living. And then what generation, if any, do you feel you're a member of? Okay, so let's see. I'll move backwards on that. Um, So I recently, so in terms of generations, so I'm about to turn 60. My birthday is, my birthday is Christmas Day. And so I'm just about to have my, have my 60th birthday um, as of, as of the time of this recording. And so technically I'm a baby boomer, but I've never identified as a boomer because I feel like I have been following the basketball of the baby boomers that got swallowed. Like, it's like, it feels like the baby boomers are a basketball that a snake followed and I've been following it my whole life. And I heard a really great description of, of us, this generation of sort of the end of it. They're called, that we are called the Joneses. And it's kind of like the, the sort of the Jones generation is trying to keep up with the Joneses. But the thing is, like, we've been sort of following after the consumption of resources that the boomers did our entire life. And so I would just say that I never identified as a boomer because I felt like I was just so at the end of the baby boomer generation because I'm like literally one week away from 1963 and the boomers. The boomers were, you know, like go to 64, but it really feels to me like the cutoff probably should have been 1960. Anyway, um, so that's the generation. So I, as you know, I currently live in Maine, but I grew up in Massachusetts. I grew up just outside of the Boston area and, uh, you know, and moved here. I've been around a couple different places. I've lived, you know, a couple different areas and stuff, but I moved here back in 1999 and have made Maine my home and absolutely love it here. It's a wonderful place. That was great. And that was a great way to kind of catch up uh, where you are now. And then I'd love to travel back in time to from your bio when you were nine and you had a prophetic dream. So that dream was about death. So when I was a child, I was highly sensitive. I was called, you know, I was constantly being told that I was too sensitive, that I was overreacting, that I was taking things too personally. 
And as well as being called a chatterbox and an old lady, because I used very, very, I had, my vocabulary was more impressive then than it is now. But, um, but when I was nine years old, I had this dream, this intense, intense dream that basically my mom had fallen over the banister of our staircase and had plummeted to her death. And I awoke feeling the worst feelings I had ever had in my little nine-year-old life. Like I was beside myself. I was absolutely devastated. And it was the worst day. Like I just was despairing and despondent and really, really distressed and upset and kind of going through the motions. And at the end of the day, at dinner, my mom announced to us, she said, oh, by the way, so-and-so's mother died of breast cancer last night. Now, this was a girl who, the, the woman whose mother who died, or the girl whose mother had died, had been my very first best friend, except that she had moved from Massachusetts to upstate New York probably three years prior to me having this dream. And because we're talking about like the late 1960s, or mid to late 60s, we're not talking about a time where people would have, actually late 1960s, but where people would have access to, uh, like people wouldn't be writing to each other, people wouldn't be, especially little girls, would not be pen pals necessarily, or, and especially we wouldn't be making phone calls because the long distance charges were so high. So she and I had completely lost touch with each other. But I had such a strong connection to her that the night that her mother died, I dreamed my own mother died. Now, the thing about this is that not only is it about how I started to discover that I had sort of, you know, extrasensory perception, but I also now understand that the way that I received this information is very telling about being an empath. Because where in my experience, people who are so, so I'm just going to start with a definition. So empaths, in my experience, are people, people, beings who pick up the thoughts, the feelings, the energy, and the sensations from the world around them. In the same way that somebody who is like a psychic or a medium or an intuitive or somebody with a lot of, clair, you know, the clairs active will pick up information, empaths also pick up information. But where a psychic, an intuitive, somebody with a, one of the clairs or a medium identifies or can recognize that the information that is coming to them is coming from the outside and they sort of can discern that it's not theirs. The empath experiences things as if it is their own. We process the information through our personal experience. So instead of me having a vision of my friend being at the hospital and saying the tearfully saying goodbye to her mother and like knowing that I was experiencing or I was witnessing the experience of this friend, I experienced it like an empath does where I processed all this information through my own emotional filters and my own mental process so that it was like I filled in the details as if it was my own. And it took me many years to really understand, like, oh, like I knew, 
I will say from the very beginning, like that was the day, like that day when my mom said this, I immediately, I knew that the dream was directly connected to this breath. Like I didn't doubt it once. I was just like, oh, I had this dream. It was about this thing. But it took many, many more years for me to understand why I had the dream the way I did instead of more of that sort of prophetic thing where you see something, but you don't, but it's not about you. Yeah, and, and so I'm curious because we talk to a lot of different people from different fields, and when a listener hears the word prophecy or extrasensory perception, I think they immediately jump to, like, I see or I can tell the future. And personally, I don't see that as the same exact thing. So I'm kind of going to ask two questions at once, and I'll let you field it however you feel. Uh, my first question would be, uh, do you believe that humans have free will? And then if the answer to that is yes, then I would be curious how you believe prophecies do or do not work within that construct. And then if the answer is no, I would be asking different questions. I love, love, love this question. And this is something I've thought a lot about. So, yes, I do believe that human beings have free will. I believe that we have choices about what we do. I also believe that many of us are unconsciously dictated by our trauma by our ancestral lineages and by all kinds of stuff that basically get in there and drive our butt. And that when we have not dealt with our stuff, when we have not done work to address, heal, and clear things that are, that are making, that, that affected us, what happens is younger parts of ourselves or sometimes ancestral legacies or even if you believe in reincarnation and past lives, trauma or traumatic experiences from a previous life often will be basically triggering us to make, to, to like do things, to behave in certain ways. And I think that that can appear to be sort of that we have, we don't have free will because when we are hijacked, by our fear and by our reactivity and by our trauma, it can really look like we don't have free will. But I believe wholeheartedly that as human beings, we have choice. That said, I also believe that the idea of you create your own reality is if you think of it through ego, that is extreme, that is, that is a lie. But if you think of it through the larger context of we as a whole entire species and as a larger, like, like the largest entity that we are, is creating reality, then yes, we, I create reality as something like as, as an aspect, as a cell in the body of the universe. Um, but what my ego thinks I want or my ego has an agenda about may or may not really be in alignment with sort of the, the, you know, kind of like the flow of the universe. And so I think that sometimes free will is not necessarily comp is not the same as an ego's agenda. 
Yeah, I really like that answer. It kind of comes close to this recent fascination I've had with what I call the overuse of the word surreal in our culture. Because people keep saying, that's surreal, that's surreal. But really, something that's surreal never happens, if that makes any sense. So, like, dreams are surreal because, quote-unquote, they're not real. So what you're talking about to me is kind of, like, about that. This idea that we're co-creating reality together is too surreal to, like, really latch onto. Like, we, we kind of feel it at moments. My best example for anyone living in contemporary America, especially, would be political, oddly enough, but I believe that the election of Donald Trump in 2016 was, like, a very surreal experience for all people living in America because even people who voted for him and ended up liking him didn't think he was a contender or that he would win. And and so there was this weird, like, compelling thing. But, but the part that I was focusing on, because especially I was living in uh, the Bay Area of California at the time, which is, you know, like, 98% percent democrat um was was like oh this won't happen this can't happen this isn't happening but like they were talking about it more than like my friends in other areas who don't care and weren't fascinated by it and so i i felt like there was this like compulsion i want to hear you you talk about this but i also think it's kind of important for you to state your philosophy on what happens when we die so that the audience who's listening can best understand how your answers tie into that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and you had asked another question in terms of free will and, and prediction of the future that I'd like to go back to just answer, which is that what I absolutely believe is that while we have free will, in terms of the concept of prophecy, what I can talk about, and I was before I became a healer and, you know, wrote Empathic Mastery and all this other stuff, I kind of, you know, cut my teeth in the world of metaphysics by being a tarot reader from the time that I was, I picked up my first deck at like the age of 19. And so I've had tarot cards, I've played with tarot cards for the last 40 years of my life. And what I believe when it comes to prophecy, when I come, when it comes to the future, is that there are likely streams that there are dominant possibilities, that in the same way that a meteorologist can look at the likelihood of where the weather patterns are going, there are likelier, likelier outcomes based on the choices that we make that we can sort of forecast or predict, that we could say, this looks like there's like probably a like 75, 80% chance that this is the dominant stream of reality that, that is going to get the support that happens. So the other side of it is like, as you were talking about, like the surrealness of certain things, thinking about like the zeitgeist of our culture and just kind of like the way that, and, and also how like that ripple had started probably 15, 20 years earlier when they started like kind of feeding the idea into the population and essentially putting him in this role of he's the authority who gets to say, you're fired, you know, but that it, it, it was like, it was like, there was a way, like this was getting infiltrated into our psyche for a period of time. So just wanted to respond to that question. But the other question you were asking is what happens when we die? So I guess what I would say is that I have suspicions based on conversations I've had with a number of people and based on conversations that I've had with, with sort of like people who appear to be on the other side who can communicate, who've been able to seemingly communicate with me about what happens. And so first off, I just want to say that while I grew up in a family of agnostics and atheists, 
who based on on at least on my dad's side, who basically believed that it's like you live, then you die, it's over. That I have always, always had a sense that there is more that 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 life, the body is that that in the same way that the human body and all living things produce cells that die and then new cells replace them. What I believe is that we as individuals are cells in the body of this earth and that every one of us is a cell that will live on this earth and then will be replaced by another cell. But the overarching body, the consciousness of this earth continues and I am part of that consciousness. I also believe, though, that there are sort of these facets of individuality that do remain, that linger and that when we, and, and in having numerous conversations with people who have had near-death experiences, as well as conversations with people who um, have lost people, loved ones and have connection or contact with their loved ones, what I, have, what I have heard again and again is that it is like, it is sort of like you're transitioning into a different um consciousness a different reality but you do not cease to exist and I and so I certainly feel like none of us can fully know none of us can fully know what this great adventure is going to be until we get to the other side I mean anybody like I don't know unless you've had a near-death experience and you've been clinically dead and pronounced dead and like you really did cross over for a while and then come back most of us can only speculate what is on the other, you know, what that experience is like. But I will say that I, I have had enough encounters that I do believe that our, that, that, that our, the spark, that the essence of who we are, that our spirit, that our soul continues on, um, you know, even after this body, we, we leave this mortal coil. And personally, I have an anchoring prayer that came to me at the beginning of the pandemic that has been so incredibly helpful because it sort of orients me about who I am, where I am, and where I am going. And it is that that I will say to myself, whenever I feel I need to remember what's what, I will say, it is from the sacred heart that I was born. It is in the sacred heart that I do dwell now. And it is to the sacred heart that I shall return when I slip this mortal coil. And for me, it's like knowing that the that there's this quality of I came from this. I don't know, you know. I may not be able to recall where I came from, but I came from somewhere. I'm still connected to that place now. And when I lose this body, when I leave this body, I will, I will return to. I will have more awareness of that, of that, of that numinous sacred heart of love like the universal heart of love is what i believe we come from and we return to i'm always trying to keep these conversations as esoteric and unrealistic as possible but then also to bring it into like how can we effectively use this knowledge and this information to suffer less my word because that's how i look at it kind of from the buddhist approach i'm not buddhist but i like the way that term is defined within that approach what would your suggestion be to people out there disregarding whether they're empathic or not or to what level they are how can you 
use that sacred heart idea and I'm and I'm being quite literal to like calm yourself down when someone cuts you off or your child is rude you know whatever it is whatever it is that just would normally like take you out of that spot for me I mean there's so many pieces in this one is to just literally put my hands back over my heart and breathe into my heart and remind me that like what is most important is love and you know there's also you ever saw the uh, the American version of La Femme Nikita, uh, Point of No Return, with Bridget Fonda and Anne Bancroft? There is just a whole section in it where Anne Bancroft is teaching her how not to react to things. And she basically is sort of teaching her, like, don't sweat the small stuff. But what she did is she used sort of an anchoring phrase, which essentially, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but it was essentially, I never did mind the little things. And what it's basically sort of saying is, like, I'm going to just, like, no matter how, like, some jerk cuts me off in traffic, I never did mind the little things. And when when thinking about the fact that, you know, for me, I do believe that there is more to this, this philosophy than, or heaven and earth than is grunts of in our philosophy, what I also believe is, like, just reminding myself, like, What's really important? Like, is getting cut off in traffic enough for me to lose my to lose my 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 zen, to lose my my calmness, to lose my ease, grace, and flow? Um, you know, and just like in the grand scheme of things, it's so not important. But also living, knowing that, like for me, living without being afraid of death allows me to live better. That if I'm living constantly from a place of like, oh, my God, if I do this, I could end up getting hurt. Oh, my God, if I do this, then what will happen next? Like sort of living, walking, living a life walking on eggshells. Like one of the questions, and my husband will sometimes ground me back into this. He's like, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? And inevitably, if I run the scenario long enough, I will come to, I'll die. Like everything comes down to that. You know, like inevitably I will die. And and for me, one thing is I I personally think it is the biggest joke on the planet that we are so incredibly like the one guarantee there is is that we're all gonna die. Or as to Olympia Dukakis and Moonstruck Cosmo, you're gonna die. And I and and like I find it so ironic how so many of us feel insulted when suddenly the inevitable happens to us. Like that, you know, like, like it's sort of like, yeah, you're getting older, you're dying. It's happening. This is what happens to all of us. Like I find it really, my husband and I are, I don't know, we we can be a little snarky, but it's really funny when every so often somebody will be like, like a 90 or, you know, like somebody in their late eighties or their nineties or even like, late 90s or even in early 100s dies and you've got these family members who are bereft like they're just like hysterically miserable like oh my god I'm so sad this person died it's like I can understand you're going to be missing them but this person lived a really good long life this is not a tragedy like when people are saying that somebody who's like 97 years old died tragically I'm like no they died they died folks we all died I mean, it's it's fascinating because I agree, and and it's like this weird thing where I, you know, I remember reading somewhere that whatever age your parents died at, most people feel like that's good enough for them, and so like people tend to live 
and match that. And it's funny because, you know, I had a grandfather, I had a great grandfather who was a hundred. Uh, I had a grandfather who was 92, you know, so longevity tends to run in my family. And it's true. I just have this like stupid, happy go lucky <laughs> approach to that. And I've been diagnosed with some scary stuff. I've been in a bad car accident, blah, blah, blah. But you know, it's like, there's just something inside me. But at the same time, I'm not, uh, I don't have the hubris it takes to like pretend that, you know, I couldn't get a bad diagnosis and, and suffer and maybe not suffer, but die either way. So, um, yeah, I, I do. I find it all very interconnected. And I think the, the other thing you touched on that I want to get, uh, you to talk about before we wrap things up here is, um, I, I totally agree with you that it's fear that takes us out of love, but fear is not the opposite of love. And so love doesn't seem like the solution to fear. And so I'm just curious, do you have any, like, cause you're, you're a pretty profound and articulate person. Do you have any like advice or talking points about that? Yes. I mean, so, so much of the work that I do is actually about dismantling fear and about honoring the fear. So first off, in my experience, the, the, the thing that is the worst thing we can do with fear is try to avoid it, try to deny it, try to run away from it, resist it. Fear is there to try to protect us. It is, fear is sort of the illusion of, you know, like I believe fear, fear exists when we believe in scarcity. Fear exists when we believe, when, when we don't have a greater sense of the larger picture that fear can really come in and is trying to protect our ego, is trying to protect ourselves. But what I find is that whenever that fear comes up, approaching it and coming to myself with an incredible amount of tenderness and coming to it with like loving myself anyway, acknowledging the fear, acknowledging that it's there and validating it, you know, instead of being like, well, you have no reason to be scared. Instead of that, really coming to the place, to the fear with this kindness of like, oh, I'm so, so, you know, like, oh, sweetheart, I can understand why you're feeling that scared about it. I can understand why this is not, this is such a big deal for you. And what if we just let it be okay? Like, I think that we spend so much time in avoidance of grief and fear as a culture that we, that we, we actually amplify it. And in my experience, resistance, like there's a saying, what we resist persists. And the thing is that when we accept something, it often has a way of softening and shifting and burning off like the morning fog. And so for me, fear is both, it's like about really coming to fear with tenderness and loving kindness, as opposed to like, I'm going to whip this into submission. That said, going back to what I was talking about earlier in terms of being dictated by our trauma, there's a, in my experience, there's a direct connection between often if I have history, if I have memory, if I have experiences that have caused me to form conclusions about things, and when something comes into my life that even remotely resembles the previous experience, I will often react to the new thing as if it's the old thing and can find myself spiraling out in fear. And so this is where, as an EFT practitioner and trainer, I adore, and EFT stands for Emotional Freedom Techniques. It's also known as tapping. And what I absolutely love about it is that it is a tool that we can use to dis 
dismantle memories and events that have caused us to form conclusions about the safety of the world. And that usually, unfortunately, are based on the perceptions of a five-year-old or based on, like, for example, I was working with one of my students the other day, and we were working on the fact that they are, whenever they think about setting boundaries with a particular family member, they become really afraid of the wrath and the anger of this family member. Now, this is a person who's in their like late 30s at this point in time, but the part of them that's afraid of this family member's acting out is a toddler. And so every single time they think about setting a boundary or setting a limit with this other family member, that inner two-year-old is basically like pitching a fit inside and pulling the emergency brake. And so, you know, in order to really navigate our fear, we need to dismantle the memories and the places where we are carrying um, distorted perceptions of what happens. Because often when we are jacked up and emotional and scared and especially young and not seeing things reasonably, like once, you know, like the first thing to go when our amygdala, the fight or flight mechanism gets triggered is basically our frontal cortex our capacity for reason. We go into the limbic brain, the emotional brain, and then eventually we slide into the brainstem where it's all instinct. But the thing is that we do not have the ability to see things rationally once we are in that sense of danger. And so as a result, we do not see things clearly. We do not understand things um, in, in a more broad, holistic way. We see things through tunnel vision and, and as a knee-jerk reaction. So for me, one of the really big keys, aside in addition to just loving ourselves through the fear, and again, just putting my hands over my heart, breathing into my heart, and just really like letting that terrified inner child know that she's okay, that I've got this that in addition to that part, going back into sort of the memories that are making me tick and unraveling those so that I have the opportunity to not be dictated by the fear and especially by the reactivity. Wow. That was definitely, I asked you to be profound and articulate and you were both. Thank you so much. That was awesome. It's been a great interview. I really, I, not, I learned a lot, but I also feel my brain thinking through new avenues, which is the whole purpose for me of doing a lot of these shows. And I think for audience members who are interested, you do have a website and they can definitely approach you. You're very findable as well as your book. Um, well, I'll just say that my website is empathicmastery.com and I kind of assist them. If you go to empathicmasterybook.com, you can get the book. And if you go to empathicmasteryshow.com, you can listen to my show. And I will say your audience in particular would probably find I've got two episodes that I released in October of 2022, which I think you guys would really love. One is by a woman named Nicole Kerr, who experienced a near-death experience when she was in her early 20s. And Nicole and I spent a good hour talking about her experience dying and being brought back. So Nicole, really, it's amazing. And then the other conversation, actually two conversations, so there's three interviews, and then one more with Tanya Braddock. Tanya grew up with a family who worked in the funerary arts, and so she started having the experience of being exposed to spirits and ghosts 
as a very, very small child. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for the cross promotion because I love for everyone to just kind of come together and meet all of these different exciting people. And there's so many people out there with so many interesting stories, which I guess is a good segue to remind you if you're listening to this and you want to come on our show, uh, please, we are approachable. You can reach us at coffin talk podcast at gmail.com. And as always, the best way to support the show is to head over to MikeyOp.com and subscribe for free. Uh, or you can also sign up for our premium subscription package, which comes with extras. Either way, we love you and we appreciate you and thank you for listening and jennifer moore thank you again for coming on the show and to those of you listening at home my name is mike oppenheim you have listened to another episode of coffin talk and we will see you soon